Hi, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick. And greetings to all of you listening from places like Montclair, New Jersey, Coyle, Oklahoma, St. Louis, Missouri, Toronto, Canada, Lisbon, Portugal, and Lucerne, Switzerland. Thanks for being here for this final episode of 2021. And I've got to say, I'm so grateful to all of you for listening. I'm glad you enjoy Horsepower Heritage, and it's been a fantastic year. And, you know, every week I try to bring you the best show I possibly can. And my approach has always been to focus on bringing you a quality product, whether it's an interesting interview or a storytelling piece. So smash that follow button and share the show with your friends. And thanks for being such a great audience. And as we close out the year, I want to take a look at the lives of just a few of the amazing people that we lost from the motorsport world in 2021 and just sort of pay tribute. You know, I'm always impressed by the men and women who have the skill and the guts to strap themselves into a race car and push that envelope. So today is all about remembering some legends, and that's coming up right after this. Christmas is right around the corner, and you can't fit a full-size car under your tree, but luckily, Model Citizen Diecast has you covered. They stock collector-grade scale models in 143rd scale, 118th scale, and even the whopping 18th scale masterpieces from the Amalgam Collection. And my listeners get 10% off with the promo code HERITAGE at checkout. Limitations apply. Shop their online catalog at ModelCitizenDieCast.com. From race cars to street cars and everything in between, it's Model Citizen Diecast for Christmas. Because your inner child still wants to play with cars. And now, back to Horsepower Heritage. Germany's Nürburgring has always been one of the world's most challenging race courses. The track has two distinct circuits, the Nordschleife, or North Loop, built in the 20s, and the Südschleife, or South Loop, which is a Grand Prix course built in 1984. But when people think of the ring, they think of the Nordschleife. With over 150 curves and corners, depending on who's counting, and numerous elevation changes over its 13 miles, plenty of big egos have been deflated along this twisty course through thickly forested terrain. Jackie Stewart nicknamed it the Green Hell after battling through rain and fog during the 1968 German Grand Prix, which he won. Now, just to the northeast of the Nordschleife is a picturesque little town called Adenau, which once upon a time was home to a girl named Sabina Schmitz. Her first contact with the track was as a child. Regular people can try their skills on the Nürburgring during one of the many open days each year. So for a few euro, you can try it yourself, whether you're in a Porsche 911 GT3 or a Citroën du Chevaux. So Sabina's father would load up the kids in the family car and take them round and round the Nordschleife. Sabina was hooked immediately, and she and her sisters began racing in their teens. As an adult, her main line of work was in the family's hotel business. But she also worked at the track as the driver of one of BMW's famous M5 ring taxis, taking visitors on a thrill ride for a couple hundred euro apiece. Over the years, she'd estimated she'd done 20,000 laps of the ring. That's over a quarter million miles. She mastered the ring not once but twice, winning a 24-hour race in her BMW M3 in 1996 and 97. Eventually, her reputation as Queen of the Nürburgring brought Sabina to the attention of the producers of the BBC's Top Gear. 
And in season five of the show, she famously blew away Jeremy Clarkson's Nordschleife lap time of 9 minutes 59 seconds in a Jaguar S-Type diesel. She came in at 9 minutes 12 seconds. And then she bragged she could even beat his time driving a van. In a follow-up appearance, she tried doing just that, but didn't quite get there, making only 10 minutes and 8 seconds. But still, it was really good fun watching her flog a Ford Transit around the ring, passing Porsches and sport bikes along the way. And it made her an instant star. She had an edge to her and a great sense of humor, and fans of the show loved her. Sabina became a regular on the new version of Top Gear in 2016, but the next year she was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer. She kept the news private for three years while undergoing treatment and doing her Top Gear segments. And then in the summer of 2020, she revealed the illness, and sadly, Sabina Schmitz died last March at the age of 51. But she'll be remembered as the Queen of the Nürburgring, and the first corner of the track has been renamed in her honor as the Sabina Schmitz Curve. The island of Sicily is notorious for two things, the Mafia and a punishing road race known as the Targa Florio. They started running it in 1906 and didn't call it quits until 1977, making it the oldest event of its kind. And during the 60s, there was one driver in particular who became the pride of Sicily. His name was Nino Vaccarella. They called him the Flying Headmaster because he ran a school in Palermo that trained accountants. And that was the family business, but he took up racing on the weekends in his father's Fiat Abarth 1100. And by the late 50s, he'd graduated to a birdcage Maserati. You'd be forgiven for thinking that Nino was bored behind the wheel because he had a quiet demeanor and the best poker face in racing. But that concealed nerves of steel and a natural talent for fast driving. After several strong races for a privateer team owned by an Italian nobleman, Count Volpi, Vaccarella got a call from Enzo Ferrari himself. Joining the factory team, he won at Sebring and the Nürburgring and even Le Mans in 1964. But he was most famous for his exploits in the Targa Florio because it was his home turf and he'd probably covered every inch of the narrow twisting island roads. Every day after work, Vaccarella would make practice runs at different sections of the 44-mile course. He wasn't the only driver to do so, but knowing the island since boyhood was a distinct advantage. Flying through the villages in his Ferrari 330 and passing graffiti that read Viva Nino, Vaccarella won the Targa Florio three times in 65, 71, and 75. It wasn't for lack of trying in other years when he had to retire from mechanical failures or bad luck seemed to intervene in other ways. But he drove like he was possessed, flat out most of the time, and the gear changes came at a staccato pace. Vaccarella admitted it was exhausting to muscle his cars around the grueling course, and they could be as fragile as they were demanding. And actually two of his victories were in Alfa Romeos, but Ferrari was his first love. And he preferred competing in events other than the Targa Florio. It was that difficult, and he enjoyed the speed and smoothness of road courses. And even with four Grand Prix races to his credit, Vaccarella never became a full-time professional because the family business came first. 
He retired after his 1975 Targa Florio victory and more or less led the quiet life again. But he was always welcome at special events and was a particular favorite of Enzo Ferrari. Nino Vaccarella died in Palermo, Sicily on September 23rd at the age of 88. Countless law enforcement officers, stunt professionals, actors, aspiring race drivers, and some who even made it professionally, owe their skills behind the wheel to Bob Bondurant. For over 50 years, his school of high-performance driving trained hundreds of thousands of students in the fundamentals of steering, acceleration, braking, and apexing. It was a lucrative second career for Bondurant, who was born in Illinois but grew up in Southern California. He muscled an Indian motorcycle around dirt tracks in his teens, and by 1956, he'd bought a Morgan Plus Four Roadster, entering it in SCCA events on the West Coast. It wasn't long before he moved up to a V8 Corvette and won 18 of 20 races in 1959. A Santa Barbara, California Chevy dealer named Shelton Washburn hired Bondurant to drive for his team in 1961. And over the next two seasons, he took home 30 wins in 32 entries. Then Carroll Shelby enlisted him to race the new Cobra, and Bondurant found himself among the new generation of American drivers who were making their mark in European racing, including Phil Hill, Mastin Gregory, Dan Gurney, and Richie Ginther. Bondurant took wins in Colorado and Riverside in his Cobra in 1963, and then a second place at Sebring in 64. And then it was on to Europe and the Targa Florio, Spa, and the Norberg With Dan Gurney as his co-driver, Bondurant piloted the Shelby Daytona Coupe to a GT-class victory at the 24 Hours of Le Mans in 1964. The following year, the Shelby team secured a championship in the GT3 class. The next logical step was Formula One, and Bondurant became a free agent, driving Ferraris, Lotuses, and BRMs for various teams. At the rain-soaked Belgian Grand Prix in 1966, he was one of several drivers to crash on the first lap during a heavy downpour. One of the others was Jackie Stewart, who found himself trapped upside down in the cockpit with fuel leaking all over him. And luckily, Bondurant and Graham Hill, who had also crashed, were able to free Stewart from the wreckage. For the next season, Bondurant returned to sports cars in the new Canadian American Challenge racing series. Now, the great thing about Can-Am was that the rule book was kept to a bare minimum, so it was an incubator for technological development. Can-Am is where the cars got low, wide, and wedgy, with monster horsepower and wild spoilers and wings taking aerodynamics and downforce to new places. And hands down, the most successful early Can-Am cars were built by McLaren. The cars were eligible for other events, too, and in June of 1967, Bob Bondurant was driving his McLaren Mark II in the United States Road Racing Championship at Watkins Glen, New York. He was doing 150 miles per hour when the steering arm failed. The car left the track and struck a dirt embankment which tore the bottom out of it and flipped it end over end eight times. Bondurant was knocked unconscious briefly. Both of his legs, one shoulder and several ribs were broken and he had a spinal fracture. But to the surprise of the track workers who came running to the wreckage, he was alive. The doctors told him he probably wouldn't walk again, let alone drive a racing car. 
After many surgeries and long weeks in the hospital, he made two decisions. First would be to prove the doctors wrong. And second, no matter what happened, he would need to find a new way to make a living. And it came to him that he could teach others to drive, which was something he'd already done because he'd worked as a technical advisor on the film Grand Prix just a year earlier. And he taught actor James Garner how to drive a formula car. Eight months later, on Valentine's Day 1968, the Bob Bondurant School of High Performance Driving opened for business in Orange County, California, with a fleet of three Datsuns and a couple X race cars. One of its first students was actor Paul Newman, who eventually turned pro and raced at Le Mans, Daytona, and elsewhere. Hundreds of thousands of students learned the Bondurant method of driving at tracks in Orange County, Sonoma, and then Arizona. Bob authored numerous books on driving, and he also returned to racing until the age of 79, winning that last race. Bob Bondurant died November 12th at 88 years old. Now, American racing, whether it's IndyCar or NASCAR, has been a family affair for decades with names like Andretti, Ray Hall, and of course, the first family of American racing, the Unser's. They've been racing something somewhere in America since World War I. Louis and Marie Unser were Swiss immigrants who settled in Colorado Springs, Colorado in the late 19th century. Their three sons, Louis Jr., Joe, and Jerry, were actually the first people to make the summit of Pikes Peak on motorcycles in 1915. The next year, they entered the inaugural Pikes Peak Hill Climb, and it would be the first of many times an Unser would race to the mountain's 14,000-foot summit. Now, Jerry Unser had four boys. There were the twins, Jerry Jr. and Louis, and then Bobby and Al. And this year, we lost two of that second generation of Unser drivers. Bobby died on May 2nd at 87. He was a three-time Indy 500 winner. And his younger brother Al died December 9th at 82. By the way, Al fought off the ravages of cancer for the last 17 years. Al took the last of his four Indy 500 wins in 1987 when he was 47 years old, which makes him the oldest Indy winner in history. And at the time, he was a replacement driver for the Penske team, so his win was a huge upset. Anyway, their dad, Jerry, moved his family from Colorado to Albuquerque, New Mexico in 1936, and he operated a garage along Route 66. So the four Unser brothers spent their whole childhood around cars, and it was more or less preordained that they'd eventually get into racing. And they got their start on local dirt tracks in a hopped-up Model A Ford. The boys moved up the ladder from midgets to sprints to modified stock cars through the late 50s. And, of course, there was the white-knuckle Pikes Peak Hill Climb, which Al won twice and Bobby won 13 times. Jerry was the first of the brothers to move into champ car racing, but he was killed during a 1958 practice run at Indy. And although Louis drove too, he preferred later working behind the scenes as an engine builder and a crew chief and mechanic. And he died in 2004. Now, Bobby Unser moved into Indy cars in 1963 and caught his first Indianapolis win in 1968, while brother Al took back-to-back -back wins in 70 and 71. In fact, he led the 1970 race for 190 laps. As a driver, Al had a reputation for discipline and patience, taking care with his car and letting things play out in front of him. When others would have a mechanical failure or wear out their tires too quickly, he would gain the advantage. And that was the case at Indy in 1978, when he was driving a Cosworth-powered Lola. 
The car was slow and Al wasn't expected to be in contention, but he bided his time. The flying Hawaiian, Danny Ongaius, led the first half of that race, but Al crept through the field and pressed him. And when Ongaius blew his engine, Al took the lead. Unser damaged his front wing in the pits later, and his tires were wearing out, but he managed to keep second place Tom Sneva at bay, and he nursed the Lola to his third Indy victory of the decade. Bobby had a long association with Dan Gurney's All-American Racers team, and both he and Al drove for Roger Penske in the 80s. In a bizarre and controversial turn of events at Indy in 1981, Bobby finished first, but his win was overturned and awarded to second place Mario Andretti. Because Unser had made a pit stop under a yellow flag, and when he came out of pit row, he passed eight cars before merging onto the track. However, Mario Andretti had done the exact same thing, passing several cars before he merged, and nothing in the rulebook specifically addressed this circumstance. All it said was that when merging out of the pits under a yellow flag, you had to stay two places behind the pace car. And that's what Bobby did. In fact, Bobby asserted that the exit of pit lane was at turn two, allowing him to use the lane until he reached that point. The Penske team appealed, and the USAC decision was reversed months later, and in its place, Unser got a $40,000 fine. And Mario Andretti didn't speak to Bobby Unser for like 10 years afterwards. But they eventually patched things up. After Bobby retired from racing, he had a second career in broadcasting, and he was in the booth calling the race the day Al won his fourth Indy 500 in 1987. Al had started at position 20, but other entries dropped out with mechanical problems, and true to form, he took the lead late in the race. And Mario Andretti was denied another win due to a broken valve spring this time, and again he was bested by an Unser brother. Bobby and Al Unser were very different people. Bobby was the extrovert, and Al was soft-spoken and private, but they shared a sense of modesty and gratitude that can be all too rare in an intensely competitive business like racing. And finally, a few words about one of the greatest motor racing photographers of all time, Jesse Alexander, who died last week at 92. Alexander was born in Santa Barbara, California, and his two greatest loves as a boy were cars and cameras. He soon became intrigued by the post-World War II sports car craze, and sunny Santa Barbara was the perfect place to be because all the latest new machines were being raced on a road course at the airport, and some of the era's greatest drivers were just getting their start in Southern California. Jesse went down to Mexico to photograph the wild and woolly La Carrera Panamericana in 1953. Some months later, he and his young family took a trip to Europe, and it was at the 1954 French Grand Prix that he'd realized he'd found his calling as a motorsport photographer. He made Europe his home base for the next two decades. Alexander documented the spectacle and the madness of it all, from Monaco and Le Mans to the Millimilia and the Targa Florio. But he also photographed those quiet, less glamorous moments, like greasy mechanics in the paddock, or the production line at the Ferrari factory. Jesse Alexander's images soon made it to the pages of motoring journals, but also found wider exposure in publications like Life magazine. He once told an interviewer that perhaps the most important thing about his work was the human side of things. And you'll agree when you see his portraits of drivers or snapshots of those dirty racing mechanics. They just made for something special. 
From the 50s to the early 70s, Jesse Alexander captured the men and machines of the greatest era of racing. He was on a first-name basis with guys like Dan Gurney, Phil Hill, and Jim Clark, and his photos became a masterclass for generations of young photographers to come. So that's a look at just some of the legends we lost this year. Lives well lived, and each of them leave an incredible legacy. And that's all for this episode. Horsepower Heritage will return on Wednesday, January 12th. I wish you all the best for the new year. And until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening. <laughs>